0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, We have been reading 2 Corinthians together, which is a letter that Paul wrote to foster and to deepen reconciliation with the church in Corinth. Uh, His relationship with that church had taken a pretty bad hit, uh, and it had happened in no part because some other teachers had moved into Corinth after he left, uh, and they had started to say things about him uh, to undercut him uh, as a leader and as a spiritual father to them. So in the part of the letter that we started reading together last week, Paul begins to address what those other teachers said about him, and he addresses them directly. Uh, This part of the letter is sometimes called the fool's speech, because Paul keeps mentioning over and over again in this part of the letter how much of a fool he feels for writing this way. So I'm going to read from chapters 11 and 12 for us. I'll read 1130 through 1210. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for this word that we have uh, read and heard together. And we ask that as we uh, talk about it together and think about it for a few minutes that you would meet us. That you'd meet every, every one of us here this morning in whatever conditions we find ourselves. Those of us uh, who have joy and happiness. Those of us who are in suffering and in trouble. Those of us who feel numb to the world around us. Meet us all. Show us the good grace of Jesus again. Show us his power. Comfort us. Change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I am uh, sure that some of you have seen the TV show, The Antiques Roadshow. Uh, It has uh, been on the air since 1979 on the BBC. And, of course, now lots of other countries have their versions of Antiques Roadshow. It's been running here in the States for about 25 years. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'll tell you the idea behind the show is really very simple. Regular people like you and me bring antiques to appraisers, uh, professional appraisers, um, to find out how much they're worth. That's it. That's the whole idea of the show. And for an idea so simple, I've got to tell you it is, uh, it's pretty watchable because looking over someone's shoulder at this process can be surprisingly compelling. Um, I know that this might sound weird to say, but I think the attraction of the show and I think that the reason that it's endured for so long is because it's really uh, about a lot much more than antiques and collectibles. It is also about hope (laughs) and desire (laughs) and happiness and sadness. And getting to see all of that stuff play out in real time on real people's faces. There is uh, lots and lots and lots of joy, of course, in seeing someone bring something that's been sitting, you know, forgotten in their attic or uh, something that's been handed down in their family for generations or something that they got at a yard sale for like a dollar, only to find out that it is uh, extremely rare or sought after or incredibly valuable. I mean, that's, that's what everybody wants to hear when they bring their stuff to the appraisers, even the ones that are acting cool about it, like they don't even care what they say. And uh, that moment of surprise, that moment of happiness is always fun to watch. But of course, there's the other side of it too. And I confess that is pretty compelling to watch as well. <laughs> you know, when people will bring things in only to find out that they're fakes, or really horrible uh, reproductions or that they're just really not that valuable at all. And, uh, you know, maybe one of the hardest of those disappointments is to see when people bring things in that they have meticulously restored, but in ways that the appraisers will not find valuable. (laughs) You know, like uh, an 18th century table that has been sanded down and, and smoothed out and stained some beautiful contemporary color, and then... They've applied a thick coat of lacquer, clear lacquer on it. Or there's some oil lamp from an old ship and this person has taken it and they've polished it till it gleams and then they wire it for electricity. (laughs) And then they bring those things to the appraisers and you see all of the color drain from those professionals' faces and they say stuff like, you've ruined it. (laughs) You've destroyed it. (laughs) Their efforts... Uh, at restoring have actually covered over the good stuff. And I feel for those folks because I get that impulse. I think we all do. We, we want to present stuff that looks good, that looks put together, that looks nice. And not just with our stuff. If, if we're being honest, there's a deep impulse to do that with our lives too. We want to present happy and put together and really thoughtful and in control of what's going on in our lives and in control of what's going on in our families and in control of what's going on in our workplaces we we have a tendency to want to hide our trouble and our weakness and our suffering and that's why what we just read together is so incredibly challenging i mean paul says if i'm going to boast I'm going to boast in the things that show my weakness. (laughs) And if the rest of what Paul says is right, (laughs) it means that when we buff out, when we polish over our weakness and trouble, when we try sometimes frantically to hide our suffering from other people, we are actually polishing over and hiding the really good stuff. We're plastering over the powerful stuff, the life-giving stuff. We're hiding the places in our lives where the grace of Jesus might otherwise shine through. I mean, church weakness and, and trouble and suffering, these are often part of our lives. Some of you, I know, are in the middle of a great deal of it. And you don't need anybody to tell you it's part of life. If you're not facing those kind of things right now, that is great and we rejoice with you, but wisdom and experience tell us that nobody gets a smooth ride in this life and that they will come knocking at your door. So this passage that we just read speaks simply and it speaks profoundly to our weakness and to our suffering and to our trouble and to what it means to follow Jesus in the midst of them. So it starts with that uh, profoundly counterintuitive statement, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness, which raises a couple of questions, of course, starting with perhaps why in the world is Paul boasting in the first place? Well, last week we uh, read the passage where Paul begins to address what these other teachers had said about him uh, to undercut him. And uh, a couple of the things that they said, first of all, these teachers said that Paul couldn't be uh, trusted because he was a poor public speaker. They said Paul couldn't be trusted because while he lived in Corinth, he didn't take money from the church for support. If you're wondering what in the world those accusations might be about, you can listen to last week's sermon. But in order to address those accusations, Paul begins writing like a fool. Those are his words, not my words. He starts to write like a fool. He uses all of this uh, sarcasm and all of this irony. And he lays it on super thick to get his point across to his friends. And one of the things that he does is this boasting stuff. But what Paul does is he inverts it. In the ancient world, it was pretty normal for leaders and and politicians and public speakers to boast of their accomplishments and to boast of their exploits and all of the stuff they've done and all the mastery that they had in life. And Paul just inverts it. He just twists it inside out and he starts boasting in the kind of things that his contemporaries would bend over backwards to hide. And he does that to get at the third and probably the most insidious of the accusations that these teachers had made against him. And that is that Paul suffers way too much. He's always in some kind of peril. He's always in jail. He's always on the run. He's always getting punched in the mouth by the authorities. And in their eyes, that suffering, that weakness disqualified Paul from any kind of leadership. He was weak, you know? And people want strong leaders who have it all together. People want strong leaders who are in control in the midst of chaos, who've mastered the trouble around them rather than being mastered by it. And old Paul, he can't check any of those boxes. And throughout this letter, Paul's response to that accusation has been to say, oh, you don't even know the half of it. (laughs) It is way worse in my life than you even know. It's so bad because on top of all of the stuff that you can see and all the stuff that you can hear about, there's all the stuff you can't see and won't know about until I tell you. All of the tears, right? All of the sleepless nights, all of the anxiety that I feel all of the time. He mentions that. Paul's not ashamed of any of it. At the back half of chapter 11, he draws up a long list of troubles. He says, I'm talking like a madman to tell you about these things. Shipwrecks, robberies, countless beatings, hunger, all of it. He asks at the end of it, who is weak and I'm not weak? I can out-weak anyone you know. (laughs) I'm at the bottom of the list. And then in verses 32 and 33, which we read, he tells the story about having to escape from Damascus by being let down in a basket through a hole in the wall. And a lot of scholars and a lot of commentators say this is the most audacious of all of paul's foolish boasting because what he's doing here is lampooning one of the highest honors that a roman soldier could ever be awarded that honor was called the corona muralis which means something like the crown of the wall and this great high military honor It was given to Roman soldiers, the Roman soldier who braved all of the arrows and all of the swords and all of the javelins and all of the the boiling liquid and all that stuff to get up first over the wall into an enemy city during a siege. And Paul, he twists it all inside out and he boasts not about bravely making it over the wall, but about humbly crumpling himself up into a basket, hiding to be let down over a wall so that he can run away from the battle. It's nuts. And you can easily imagine his friends reading this and and smiling and just shaking their heads. (laughs) Why would Paul tell us about all this stuff? (laughs) In a culture that celebrated fame and success and power and mastery, Why wouldn't he keep this stuff to himself? Well, I'll tell you why. Because he loved these people. And because he had found a more powerful and more life-giving thing to order his life around than the thin and easily lost values of fame and success and power and mastery and having it all together. And he knows that this thing that he's found, this life, this power, this deep, deep good, it doesn't come in spite of suffering. It doesn't come adjacent to his suffering. It comes in the middle of suffering. It comes because of suffering. It comes through suffering. And that is really good news if you and I have ears to hear it. And so he finally gets to saying what it is that he has found. Or as he puts it in verse 1 of chapter 12, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. (laughs) I love that he puts it that way, tongue firmly in cheek. It's like he wants to tease them into this. He wants to lead them along to this divine thing, to this scandalous thing. He's going to change their lives forever. He knows there is everything to be gained by it. He says he's going to go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul says, I'm going to go on to a man, he says in verses 2 through 4, a man who was caught up into the third heaven, a man who was caught up into paradise. I'm going to go on to this man who heard things that can't be told, things that man cannot utter. Paul says in verse 5, on behalf of this man... I will boast. So there are a bunch of things to say about this. (laughs) Paul is describing first something that's relatively uh, a regular occurrence in scripture, a a mystical experience, a vision. Just read the book of Ezekiel and you'll see these visions. It's like uh, Isaiah the prophet had one in in Isaiah 6. He sees God and all of his glory sitting on the throne. Surrounded by the seraphim. And the apostles had them too. Peter had a couple. Paul, in Acts, we're told, had several. And we know the content of all of those visions and all of those revelations because we get told about them. But this one one is different. It was personal. It couldn't be told. It couldn't be uttered. It was just for that person. And it must have been dramatic and powerful and moving, maybe even life-changing. And that's the point in Paul bringing it up. It is just the kind of thing, just the kind of experience that the other teachers in Corinth would go in for. It is just the kind of thing that these other people would want to emphasize in their resume. It is just the kind of thing that might give somebody some spiritual credibility in this place, which leads me to another really important thing to say about this, and that is that Paul is very clearly talking about himself here. He says so in verse 7. This happened to him. But in the lead-up to that, he's all coy and slippery. He distances himself from it. He's downplaying it. Why is he downplaying it? Because he does not bring it up in order to draw any capital from it at all. None. Just the opposite. This is what he says in verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. That's the whole reason he brought this vision up, so that he could talk about the thorn his weakness, his suffering. Which in this case was given to him as a preventative against the great spiritual malady of pride. Now there, of course, has been a lot of speculation for the entirety of church history. Probably from the time the ink dried on this letter. What in the world is Paul talking about? What is his thorn, you know? And generally they fall into three categories. You know, it could have been a person, some opponent, some enemy, some enemies. Much more often, people in the history of the church have suggested that it has to be something physical, you know? Maybe he had an eye problem or epilepsy or maybe he had a speech impediment or maybe he had migraines. Some people have suggested that it might be what we call uh, a psychological condition, depression, anxiety, some kind of thing going on in his personality. We don't know. Maybe his friends in Corinth knew, but we don't know. We don't know if they knew, and I'm really glad. Because it makes it a whole lot easier (laughs) for us to plot our own thorns (laughs) on what he is about to say. Because this is the real point of the whole thing. And it's the place to which he has been leading his friends all along. And for a moment, the fool stuff falls away. And all of the irony stuff dries up. And Paul is as earnest as he possibly can be. Three times. I pleaded with the Lord about this church. Three times I asked him to take it away. And this tells us something important. I mean, maybe this goes without saying, but I want to be sure that I say it, that Paul hasn't been boasting in weakness and he hasn't been boasting in trouble and suffering because he likes it. He does not like it any more than you and I like it when it's present in our lives. What he wants is for it to be taken away. He wants it out of his life, just like you and I do. And so he takes it to God, who he trusts can do something about it. And so I wanna say, if you are suffering right now, you know, whatever it is, that's causing it, a person, a physical thing, a spiritual thing, psychological thing, whatever it is, I want you to know that a faithful response is to ask God to take it away. We did that this morning already in lament. We went to him and said, repair this, fix this. And the Psalms are full of this. I mean, if you are suffering, you can pick up the Psalms and start reading really literally anywhere. And before too long, I promise you, you will get to a place that describes your experience exactly. The end of Psalm 28 was our Old Testament lesson this morning, and I think it's a great Psalm to pray when we are suffering. To you, O Lord, I call, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. Our own Paul, Paul Vanderbilt, has, has set that psalm to music. If you've been here for any length of time, you have probably sung it. It would be great to sing in suffering. And so that's what Paul asked God. Please take this away. And God didn't take it away. And that's how it is Sometimes. You know, we don't, we don't write this stuff out. If we're, if we're in charge of writing the script, we take it all out. <laughs> I'm telling you, for you, if I could write the script for all of you, I would take it all out. But we don't, uh, we don't know the big picture. We don't know the long story of our own lives. We don't know the long story of the redemption of all things. We don't have it all together in our heads. We don't know the people that we are being made into. We don't know what we're going to be required to do. Only God knows those things. He is the one who writes the script. (laughs) And so we trust him. God doesn't take it away, but he does give Paul a promise. And it is one of the most profound and comforting and promises that people like us can ever get from God. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. I mean, whatever that thorn was, however bad it was, however frustrating, however painful it might have been, the grace of God is sufficient for it. And sufficient for Paul, because his power is made perfect in weakness. And I want you to hear that, church. I want you to hear it. The power of God touches your life at precisely the point of your weakness and suffering. Not in spite of it. Not despite it. But the power of God touches your life at precisely the point of your weakness and suffering where you and I are at the end of ourselves you know, where we are out of our resources and we know it where we come to the place where we cannot control and we cannot manage anymore and we cannot fix it God meets us in love to strengthen us and to sustain us He is enough for you That is the promise, and it's absolutely true. And that's why Paul won't plaster over his weakness. That's why he won't cover over his trouble. That's why he's not going to polish that stuff out of his life and try to hide it. That's why, as he says in verse 9, he will boast all the more gladly in his weaknesses so that the power of Christ rests on him (laughs) so that Jesus will fly to him. Jesus graciously meets us in our suffering. And when he does, we meet someone who knows us. Because we meet someone who also asks, as we heard in the gospel lesson three times, for something to be removed from him. And it was not. And when it was taken from him for love and in great, incredible, inestimable power, He walked towards the cross where all of our thorns, as it were, were woven into a crown for his head. And through the power of his resurrection and through the power of his ascension, he has taken away the power of suffering for us forever. And he has promised that one day it will be gone. To follow him in faith and repentance is to know even in our deepest trouble and suffering, that he is enough. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would uh, remind us again and again and again and again of this truth, that when we are weak, we are strong because your power rests on us in those moments. Father, help us to remember this and lean into it and trust you in the middle of even of our our most difficult suffering. Help us to lean into this and to trust you when we come alongside those who are suffering. Father, do this so that we will grow up in our faith, so that we will be healed. Father, when we think of suffering, of course, uh, we think of this conflict that's going on in Ukraine we think of all of the people who are suffering from the horror of war. And so we ask that you would, uh, Father, work powerfully. We ask uh, that you would end the conflict. We ask that you would reduce death and suffering on all sides. And we ask that you would be happy to work through your people to care for all of these hundreds of thousands of refugees that are fleeing the country. Father, we pray this all in the strong name of Christ. Amen.